Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we are lucky enough to have Celeste Baranski with us. And Celeste is the Vice President of Engineering at Numenta. And Numenta is a machine intelligence company. So what does that mean? Well, their intelligence can help companies analyze IT and server data, or anomalies in stocks, or rogue behavior within a network. So it's quite interesting. And Celeste, I think, is in charge from the engineering perspective, taking their algorithms and intelligence and building the architecture and framework to make it useful. But we'll find out more. Um, about that. So I invited Celeste on the show because I'm curious how she makes this happen and just to hear more about her background. So Celeste, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure. So yeah, like I mentioned, I want to hear more about your background. So maybe you have a quite a, a rich background. So do you, could you start uh, telling us a little bit about what you've done in the past? That'd be great. Sure. Um, I got a bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering from Stanford, and I've worked my entire career here in Silicon Valley, um, most of it in startup companies. I've been in seven startup companies, and most of them working in very early um, bleeding-edge consumer products. Um, so most of them not successful, but, but a lot of fun, a lot of interesting technology. Um, and then I moved, I did uh, hardware design, I was a hardware engineer um, for the first few years, and then I moved back and forth between managing small groups and design, and then maybe after about 10 years, I, I moved fully into uh, management, so I've been managing software and hardware teams um, in Silicon Valley on, again, mostly consumer products up until Nementa. Okay, and and how did you get involved with working with startups, and why did you continue down that path? Oh, that's, that's a good question. So um, I joined a fairly large company right out of Stanford. It actually wasn't that big. It was a few thousand people. It had just gone public with telecom. And um, it was a little boring. I mean, it was, it was fun because we there were a lot of new grads from Stanford who they hired, and it was a bit like a continuation of college. But I didn't feel especially challenged. Um, and so one of my um, – a guy I knew from my master's program had gone to a startup called Grid Systems, which was working on a laptop. This was the early 1980s, so this was well, well, it was before DOS even shipped, let alone wow. okay. yeah. that a laptop was even conceived of. And it just, he showed me what they were doing, and I was just fascinated. So I joined them, and I just, I love the ability to work on things where you really have an impact and a small company, a startup company, that's what it's all about. And especially on things that, um, that may be new and exciting that not a lot of people are working on. So I just kept doing it. Interesting. And so what did you, uh, in that first company that one was kind of working on the laptop, uh, what, what was your role? What did you do at that company? I was a hardware engineer. So, um, I went in and designed, um, the whole, the board, I ended up designing the chips on the board and I managed the project with some consultants and for like a 22 year old out of college, it was an amazing experience. I bet. I bet. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you out of all those experiences, was there one that you, uh, thought was the most interesting or helped you the most or, um, um, Probably the a company called Handspring, which I don't know if you've ever heard of. I have we were, heard of yep. Hey, well, yep. I I ran <laughs> the um, engineering group there. That was later in my career, so I joined in I think 1998, and it was just a fabulous experience. We um, we did invent the first smartphone, 
Um, and it was called The Trio, was well before the iPhone was ever conceived of. And it was wildly successful for a couple of years. Um, unfortunately, the whole dot-com crash kind of caught up with it. Caught up with us cash wise, but it was an amazing experience, and just the product, the people, um, it was it was just really fun. Interesting. Did you guys grow really fa- quite fast in those two years? We did. We we went from um, well, our at the time our revenue was the fastest growing ever of a consumer really? products company, even know. beating oh. out Sony. Yeah, we went wow. from zero to four hundred million year runway overnight. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was incredible. Before this was before the dot com crash. And that wasn't on the cell phone. We um we had actually spun out uh, um well the two founders of Palm Computing, uh, Donna Davinsky and Jeff Hawkins, had left Palm and wanted to do this smartphone, but they ended up first doing a um another organizer. The Palm Pilot was a very successful organizer. We did an organizer and it was the organizer took off and really started our run rate before we even started on the smartphone. So it was just um it was a fun experience to to design products and then I would see people carrying them. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> right I'd stand in line and three people in front of me would have our products on them. It was um really fun. So by then were you in charge of kind of overall was, hardware or what what part of the oh, no at that point it was VP of engineering so hardware and software oh, hard engineer okay gotcha gotcha yeah. all right interesting and so uh let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now which is interesting so yeah. how, how did you get involved well it sounds like you <laughs> were involved with a, I, another one of yeah. Hawkins uh startup but yeah how do you get involved with Numenta so I actually met Jeff back at Grid, which was the first the laptop company I talked about, and he joined about a month after I did at Grid. So we were both very early in our careers, um, and he, from the very beginning, we've been friends since then, and he talked about his his desire to figure out how the human brain worked um, 30 years ago to me. And so I've always been fascinated with it, just incredibly fascinated. Then I worked pretty closely with him at Handspring, and he, he really invented the smartphone as well as the the you know mobile organizer, um, and he after Handspring he went and did Numenta. He actually started doing um, uh, a pure research neuroscience institute first, and then he founded Numenta about 12 years ago now, 2005. And I've just been fascinated ever since listening to him talk about it, and then hearing over and over again. So I was I really wanted to do something, but I'm a, I'm really a hardware engineer. I'm not a software engineer. I ended up starting a company with a couple of other colleagues uh, back in 2007 that we were the first developer on top of Numenta's platform. Hmm. Um, turned out to be too early, and we had to shut that down in 2010. Uh, and then I w- got lucky enough to get a job here about two years ago when the um, original VP of engineering here, Subitai, wanted to go into full-time research. And Don and Jeff had both worked with me. And so even though my background, I'm not a neuroscientist, you know, not a computer computational neuroscientist, anything like that. They wanted somebody who could do a lot of different flexible things and could manage a team through a um, a, a company that has a lot of different changing priorities and, and different missions. And so I got to join them, and I'm just having a great time. It's really, really fun. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a a pass. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. And. Uh, and and could you you know I, I tried to describe Numenta but yeah. can you maybe give a, a brief description um, for the folks? Yeah, sure. I tried. I practiced doing this in a few sentences. Okay. It's actually pretty complicated. Okay. We actually have a dual mission, and this is I've worked in a lot of companies in Silicon Valley. Know a lot of them. This is the most unusual company I've ever worked at. We have a dual mission. One of them is um, a neuroscience mission, which is to re 
to reverse engineer the neo- neocortex, the human neocortex, hmm. which is just you know incredible and fascinating. And um, that is probably our number one mission. That's what we, we really focus on first. But then the second part of the mission is to apply the principles we learn about neocortex to machines or to computers, which is where the machine intelligence piece comes in. So um, we're, we're working on neuroscience research and theory mm. and algorithms and publishing those algorithms. And then we also publish example applications of you know the software that use the algorithms in real-world situations. Gotcha. So do you have a, a number of researchers? We doing? have um, – our whole technical team is 12 people. So okay. the company is about 15. It's pretty small. Yeah. Um, these were insider-funded, so we don't have outside funding just okay. so we can – concentrate on what we want to do. So we stay small. The 12, um, Subutai, who is the VP of research here, and one other PhD student or PhD graduate, they have the titles research, so they do full-time research along with Jeff Hawkins. And everybody in engineering who works for me, also, I'd say everybody contributes. It's really um, a gray gray area here where you do some things for research. You do Everybody's a software engineer except me. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth, and we we focus on what's important to move the research forward. Really interesting. Yeah, that's unusual for like a smaller company to have research first focus. Yeah, that must be yeah. fun. Or uh, it is. It's yeah. totally fun. And uh, so yeah, so how do you balance that between? I mean, like you said, research comes first, but you probably want to make money too right. at some point or enough. Well, and, yeah. So, so we don't have any revenue goals right now. Okay. So we actually don't concentrate on making money. Um, what what our mission is, as far as the technology goes, is to get get as broad use as possible of it. So everything we do is in the open source, um, which under the AGBL v3, which is um, a license where anybody can use any of our code to do non-commercial applications. So researchers, any kind of research in within companies using it to, to try something out, proof of concepts, you don't need to worry about it. Um, if companies do want to use it commercially, we do offer a commercial license, which we have a few partners who have commercial licenses, but our focus is not necessarily on raising a lot of cash right now. It's getting the technology um, valued and, and to be of use in both academia and business. Hmm. So we we that we're really lucky to be able to do that because of the way our business is set up. We aren't venture capital backed. We don't have investors waiting for yeah. the return, and within a year, and um, and Jeff and the few investors who put in some money over the years really are have a very long term focus in figuring huh. out how the brain works. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, and that's probably where a lot of kind of breakthrough technologies will happen too when you have that kind of devoted focus. You know, on deep problems, not just uh, trying to spin out something that can make money in six months, which most companies are focused on, but they're going to miss out on the kind of the deeper game changing technologies. Yeah, that's what I find so fascinating about this company is most places like this are like IBM or Xerox yeah. Park. You know, they have they have the money to be able to do this kind of research, but then they're big companies, so the bureaucracy is on top of it. And we just we don't have the bureaucracy yet. We have the ability to really focus on research. Um, and we have a small team, but it's also, it's incredibly productive. So we, it's, uh, it's really a, a very interesting mix and, and uh, I think doing really, really important work. Huh. And can you kind of, can you explain the overall technology and kind of the, the idea behind how it works? Um, sure. So, um, 
So I can let's, let me see how I can do this pretty quickly. So um, we some of it is how we work. <laughs> some of your other questions were about how we work here, so it's kind of mixed into that. Okay. So we we do um, we are working on a overall framework or a theory of how of biological intelligence, which can, which can also be assigned uh, applied to machines. So if you think about what intelligence is, there's really only one intelligence system that everybody agrees is intelligent, which is the neocortex. It's mostly humans, but you know all mammals have a neocortex. So that, that that's really pretty much everybody agrees that's the seat of intelligence. So we go from that um, standpoint. We're trying to understand what the brain is doing as a system. So how the neurons, you know, interact to learn patterns, which is you know, part of intelligence. How the sensory motor inputs come in and how they influence the pattern. So we do a lot of real basic neuroscience learning, which is reading papers, it's collaborating with other academics, and it's coming up with a theory of how everything works together. Then, um, and that, that's done mostly in a, in a small group meetings. Jeff leads those, and the researchers lead those, and they talk through things, and, and sometimes it moves slower than other times. You know, Nementa's been around for 12 years, um, and we've made some progress, but we're not done. Um, we're, we're, we think we're making a lot of progress on the theory over the last, say, six months, which is great, but... Um, but we aren't done yet. Then once the once people are feeling pretty good about the theory, we start. To, well, we test it out by looking for papers in in neuroscience literature to either support or maybe maybe not support what we're thinking. Um, when we get closer, we start to implement the, some algorithms and software to see if we can make the apply the principles to um, to data in a research framework. And once we get if we get those working, then we we actually write the algorithms and production code and release them into our platform. So the platform it's called NuPic, Numenta Intel, wait, Numenta Platform for Intelligent Computing, has um, algorithms that are in the open source that people can use for doing you know, commercial activities. But it only represents maybe 40% of our theory right now because it's the stuff that's more hardened and tested. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and, and how does it? Uh... I know I, I read this is long ago, so I, I read the Jeff's uh, book on intelligence, and they you know kind of talked about the um, structure, kind of a hierarchical structure. Um, can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Kind of the about philosophy. the okay about the brain architecture. Yeah, then. yeah. Um, so the, the so the no, it's a known neuroscience fact that the the neocortex is uniform both physically, so the neurons in there are, look largely similar. The regions are largely similar, so if you slice it open, it's in any place, it's pretty similar. And neuroscientists have also known for many decades that um, the even if you have certain areas in the, the neocortex that are attached to a sensory array, so there's a vision area, an auditory area, but if something happens to that area, other areas of the brain can take over those functions. So the, the brain is pretty adaptable and flexible. Um, so what we've been working on is trying to figure out how a group, a region of neurons in that area um, learn patterns. Huh. And so our, our premise, the theory says that the, the synapses on the neuron are, um, as they grow um, over time, that's how learning is done. And so our software imp implements, it's not an art artificial neuron, so the artificial neuron uh, neural nets and ends very different from what we're doing. That may have been biologically inspired at the beginning, but then the artificial neurons are very simple and have nothing to do with biology. So our model does is not exact, so it's not neuromorphic. It's not 
it's not um, trying to mimic every single piece of the brain, which there are people trying to do that, but that's super complex. We're taking what we think are the principles, the important principles for learning and then implementing them in software. And so the neuron, uh, our neuron model has a number of um, active dendrites that are modeled that come in from different areas and they um, they take data in the form of a sparse distributed representation, which is we we think is the language of the brain. It's what we use too, which you can think of as a large sparse vector, um, mm. because in your brain there's billions of neurons, but only a very very small fraction are ever active at one time, and they're kind of distributed all over your brain. So we, the data that we take in mimics that function, and then those the um, the neurons that we implement in the region take those SDRs in, and they can learn patterns over time, mimicking the the synapse growth. Gotcha. And then once you learn a pattern, you can and you learn it without having to have a lot of training data or labeled data. It's learning all the time, just like your brain. Hmm. And yeah, that's what I was curious about. I mean, it, you might have just answered it, but yeah, you know, I was curious how it's different than neural networks. I mean, that's one thing is often neural networks need a, a a huge amount of label data. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, how, how is yours? I mean, do you have different algorithms? Or how, obviously you do, but how is it set yeah. up differently? So, that, so I think that we, um, we have a nice blog post on this too on our website. Oh. But we, we, the way I, we get asked this a lot by everybody that comes yeah. in. So we've kind of defined this is an artificial intelligence is in an incredible period right now. It's um, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in all kinds of areas. So, but it's also kind of gray because it isn't, there's not a lot of, um, it, it isn't really mature, a mature field yet. So even the terminology is really hard to understand. So we kind of define things into three categories. One is of, of, of types of artificial intelligence. One of them is traditional AI, which you can think of, as, it's been around for me, actually many decades as more of an engineered solution. So uh, engineers saw, you know, this is the way I want, I want something to act like this, so I'm an engineer, an exact solution. You can think of a rules-based system or, um, or a, um, yeah, rules-based system is probably the best way to describe it. You know, IBM's Watson is actually a good example of traditional AI where they've engineered this amazing computer to do very specific tasks. But it's not really flexible and it's not intelligent in the sense it doesn't learn over time. Um, so that's one class. The next class you can think of as uh, mathematical or, or artificial neural nets. Um, and those, it's, it really is a mathematical and statistical-based um, science, which is, and it works great. There's been a lot of breakthroughs, even though artificial neural nets are around for, I think, 20 years, maybe even longer. The amount of data available and the computational power available over the last few years, there have been a huge amount of breakthroughs in this. So deep learning is in this category, and it's, um, it does really well at classification problems. So if you can provide lots and lots of data, you can train these highly complex math- mathematical models to do a really good job at um, recognizing faces or recognizing specific patterns on the web, um, and it's really valuable. Like a lot of companies are doing research in this. Um, but it is, it's not um, really bio, it's not a biological, biologically based approach, and it doesn't um, learn continuously, and it doesn't really take into account patterns that change over time. And so I'm, I'm getting now to the biologically biologically constrained algorithms, and HTM is one of them. There are there are others that do this, but we're probably the only commercial one. 
Um, and we, um, the things that distinguish us against other AI is we are all based on temporal patterns, so patterns that change over time because that's what your, you know, as a your brain reacts to things that happen over time. It isn't a static um, batch process. It also learns continuously, so um, the learning never stops. There's no training period. There's um, there, there's a period when you're learning it, like a baby learns something, but then you learn for the rest. Learning is never turned off. You continually learn, so if patterns change, you learn the new patterns. So you don't go back from training to operation. Um, those are probably the two biggest changes, and we think this is really the true, and if you define intelligence as being able to learn that, that the biologically plausible um, algorithms are really the ones that are intelligent. That's mm-hmm. not to say that deep learning doesn't have any value. It certainly does, but it isn't, um, it, since it doesn't take it into effect, into account temporal data, and by the way, there's like 30 different deep learning al- algorithms that engineers have to piece together for any one particular mm-hmm. problem where the biological ones, we have two or three algorithms, and they're used for everything. Um, so the the code really? base stays the same. Wow. The data, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Now you do need, depending on what kind of data you're feeding in, you need to encode the data into a sparse distributed representation. So there is a process, the encoder process, which does change depending on data type. But the algorithms itself, looking for anomalies, and today they look for anomalies and and can do predictions. Um, don't change at all. So it's pretty. It's a, a definitely a different approach. Interesting. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like you have adaptive learning kind of built in. To it, your, yeah. We call it either continuous learning or, or online learning. But yeah. yeah, interesting. Wow. Okay. And so for your role, you know, what? Uh, well, I'm curious. Yeah, what you kind of do, what your priorities are as VP of Engineering, um, and and then yeah, we'll start there. Okay. <laughs> so this is it's a really different job because we're you know we are pretty small in my. I've run groups up to, gosh, I think at, at Palm, after Han, we got bought by Palm at Handspring, and my group was almost 500 people. Wow. Very, very different role here. And we don't, since we don't do commercial products, so I do a mix of um, project management. If we're doing some projects, I do hiring. We, we actually don't have any full-time positions, but we have a very strong intern program. So I help, I manage the intern program with my director. Um, I do writing. I help with the business stuff, um, work with a marketing person. I pretty much do everything I can to keep the group motivated and working on the highest priorities um, and focused. And I try to get Jeff and Subutai the time to be able to concentrate on the research because that's where, that's the important stuff. Um, so I do whatever I can to motivate the team to help them. Gotcha. And yeah. when, okay, so you have these two or three algorithms and then how do you, uh, from the engineering perspective, make it uh, easy for anybody to uh, kind of tap into this intelligence? So we have, we have all our code in the open source. Um, it's, so we, there's new pick is an open source project, and our production algorithms are in there. Um, we also open source all of our research code and our research activities is also so people oh, wow. can look at what we're doing. We try to be super transparent. Uh-huh. We do have so we do have patents. We have over thirty, I think thirty four um, issued patents in this area now. We have a non-assert. Um, uh, we've made a non-assert a statement that we won't assert our patents against people doing academic research or using them for research purposes. But we do, we feel our value as a company is largely tied up in those patents. Um, but af- after we, 
once we apply for patents, we put everything into the into the open source so people can see what's going on. And we have a open source community, of probably about I think 400, 500 people now worldwide who are doing various things, trying to use the code. Um, we try to keep it documented. We don't have a formal SDK or, or okay. super formal documentation. We, the code is fairly well documented. There's a good wiki, but we haven't had, you know, we don't have the bandwidth to do that. So the community does some documentation. Um, our we have an open source coordinator who works for me, Matt Taylor, and he does. He's been focused lately on education, so he's doing a YouTube video series on um, called HTM School. HTM Hierarchical Temporal Memory is the name of our of our theory. So we try to support the community however we can, and then try to get them to support each other. Hmm. And can you give an example of? Well, ideally, more cutting edge the better, but some of it's probably confidential. But uh, an example of, uh, you know, I, I listed some use cases at the beginning, you know, around stocks or monitoring rogue behavior. Um, you could use one of those, or if there's another one where, uh, you know, your algorithms learned and um, helped whatever mm -hmm. the use case might be. Okay, I can tell you about a commercial one today and then maybe a kind of a far-reaching one when we get further. Um, the There is... Um, in one of its uh, business models a few years ago, Numenta did develop a commercial application that was called Grok that used the learning algorithms to detect anomalies in server farms. So we, we ended up writing it for AWS. So you can monitor your um, servers in AWS, and if something, uh, anom uh, you know, an anomaly happens, you get notified. And we've, I think we've proven pretty well that we can find anomalies early, much earlier than many other techniques like thresholding. Yeah. So we, um, about a year ago, we um, made a deal with a part, with another company that was a startup. Uh, I think they're going by the name Grokstream now, and we transferred that whole application to them, and they're selling it commercially. So that is um, the probably the biggest app commercial application that's using our technology today. So it's finding anomalies in service streams. And, and what would be an example of an anomaly that you'd find that would be a, a problem? Or so, um, for, for instance, you were have so in an AWS um, server, you probably get 500 metrics every five minutes. You get a measurement out of 500 metrics that tell you how your servers. All your server farm is doing every there is CPU usage, there is network traffic, there's load balancers, so there are all these signals. Um, so if somebody, um, for instance, we we run this in our you know on the monitors our development um, process. So last couple nights ago, I, over the weekend, we got an anomaly on one of our servers, and you, it turns out that one of the engineers kicked off a manual build process versus having the normal. Hmm. Build process that's, um, that's in the pipeline. So if you're in a, that doesn't matter for us because you know that's okay. But if you're in a trying to monitor a large IT infrastructure, people can't keep their eyes on so many things at once. So you you need a filter to tell you when something unusual happens, and it, it was a combination of CPU metric and network in, I think. And it just gives you a red flag and says, hey, if something unusual happened with this server. Then the IT professional can go there and see maybe it's something bad. Maybe the server is starting to run out of memory or somebody's doing something. Somebody's accessing a file they shouldn't somewhere. Interesting. And that's because the algorithm was trained essentially on mm -hmm. what's what's kind of a normal day use a normal case. pattern. And yeah. then when the pattern is disrupted or, is a, yeah, there's an anomaly, mm -hmm. then it triggers something. Huh. Okay. Yep. And it's trained on a, t a temporal pattern, so a pattern over time. So it's 
more than just a threshold or something that was it was told to look for it. Things that learned itself um, over time. Because and and so it doesn't need um, like a lots of labeling necessarily. Like would it, you know would it no use kind no of like, label really wow interesting. Yeah. So okay. it, it just learns what it sees. So you can add labels on in an outer loop if you want to label something as bad or good. What this program really does is looks for changes, and that's what our we have a little example application. I think you might have referred to as HTM for stocks, which you can download onto your phone to try to try to see what HTM looks like to in a consumer application. And it monitors stock volume, stock price, and the number of tweets, the Twitter volume, mm-hmm. for 200 large trade, large cap um, companies that are traded on the stock exchanges in the U.S. And it tells you when there's an anomaly for any company, and then it sorts on your phone, it sorts the list so you can see where the anomalies are. Now, it doesn't tell you whether that anomaly was good or bad. It just <laughs> is a change. Right. Interesting. So if you wanted to, you could add... Um, we'd love somebody to take that app and add, you know, things around there, and they can filter out and classify whether an anomaly is good or bad. But it just—it's a change in something. How how much more, if, with that example, like, could you add, you know, twenty more data sources, and would it be able to handle that? Or, oh yeah, yeah. the reason is it has two hundred is because that is the since we're running this for free, um, turns out you can get um, basically you can search two hundred Twitter streams for free. Oh, the public nice. API from Twitter. Um, otherwise, you got to pay a lot of money. So we're we're basically just using as an example what you can do. Gotcha. Or oh, and and I almost meant like new data sources. Like you know, right now you're dealing with stock prices and tw- and tweets. But what about if you wanted to bring in like lots of other? Um, uh, oh, I see. New- yeah, we thought about putting in news sources. Yeah, so you stuff, could. Yeah. Yes. So you, yeah, could you could in, absolutely do that. Okay, you can bring yeah. lots of stuff. Interesting. Okay. Wow. So it's quite flexible. Um. So, yeah, what's the – and then you have another example maybe down the road? Yeah, sure. So, oh, and one other interesting one that one of our other partners today is doing is when you think about it, it's pretty huge. It's natural language processing. So when you think about – there's a lot of work being done in in language processing, um, but it's really a learning process of what – and understanding what words actually mean, not just a big matching thing that – that can be done. So I think Watson does a, a good job of doing natural language queries because they just have a massive amount of information. But I, I question whether Watson really understands the sentiment, the sentiment of something that's being said. I don't think that's their thing. But if you do, if you can really understand what something means, then it opens up a whole whole new um, whole new way of dealing. Computers deal with language. So Cortical.io is using um, HTM to to do that, to really understand natural language. Huh. So it's, it's, again, the same thing. You can apply the same learning algorithms to a totally different data source. Um, that's, that's not even a number. Interesting. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Um, and then if we look in the future, so what, what we're working on now is, in the theory side, is trying to understand how the sensory motor behavior, the sensory information comes in and how that interacts with your neocortex and the neocortex then directs behavior. So, right, your body is really directed by your brain to do things, but your your body is what's, what's seeing and touching and hearing things and taking the data in the brain. So it's all a big circle. Um, and that's a, that is kind of complete theory of the neocortex once you get that circle done. Um, and Jeff has a really neat example he's been talking about in the last few talks about you can, uh, you, you know, one thing that, that could be a learning machine that you could send into outer space because if you think about it, 
you don't want to send a bunch of people to Mars, even though we saw the the Martian movie, whatever. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's when when you if you first go to a not an inhospitable planet, people can't be there because it, you know it's kind of how who is the first person that goes there and how do they even live? So if you could send a machine there who who had learned how to do things like building structures, but was intelligent enough to adapt when things happen, if there's a windstorm or the you know, they run out of gas or whatever. They're gonna they're gonna be able to do things that humans can't do even. And I thought that was just a fascinating example because it it can, you know, change the change the way mankind lives in this world and even in the universe. Huh? Yeah, that's that's true intelligence. <laughs> if we could, uh, yeah, give that and it's point. good. It's it's not a, it's not an evil thing either, right? And no. All technology can be used for good and evil, and certainly intelligent machines. You can imagine somebody programming them or or making them for evil, but there's also incredible good that can come out of them. So, so in five years, you know, what would it be? That was the kind of tough question. But in five years, what would be yeah. an application or something like, hey, if we could do this by this time, that would be, you know, pretty amazing. Um, so um, that was the hardest question, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but because you know, I, I'd say if you go back when I talked to Jeff when he was first starting Numenta, he didn't think it was going to be this long. You know, if he looked wow. in the future, it was like twelve years later, and I'd be doing this. <laughs> I don't think he knew that, so we don't, we don't know. But um, certainly, if we can, if we continue the progress that we've been doing over the last nine months in the theory, we could be doing things that do integrate sensory motor behavior. Um, and the the most obvious example is really good robotics, um, but there's other things like like what I mentioned about the you know space um, yeah. space exploration. So five years is one of those strange time frames where I can kind of see where we're going to be in a year and what we might do. But five years, I, I don't really know. But it's I know it's going to be exciting. So yeah. Well, I just like to hear exciting stuff. Even if it takes you 15 years, that's okay. <laughs> I like, maybe I should have said 15 years, and then then it's so far off, everyone has forgotten by then. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I I think that if certainly we hope in our lifetimes that that I really feel like one of the reasons I'm working here is I do think that Jeff, it, what he's doing is brilliant, and I really think it's important. And us and whether HTM and the exact implementation we're doing in Menta is exactly right, I don't know. But the concepts and the ability to understand what the neocortex is doing will impact mankind. I just think that's fascinating, and I hope it's in my lifetime. Yes. Yeah, me too. So I'm glad you guys are doing this. Because, <laughs> yeah, like you said, there's, I mean, there's so much research around neural networks, and mm-hmm. I think people are trying to advance that, but yeah, it doesn't learn um, yeah, it's a lot of, uh, batch processing and then labeling. And so, uh, yeah, you guys are like, we talked about doing more of the advanced work that needs to be done in order to That's really, really it's, it's the understanding of the, the really, the system, how the system, the brain works. Um, and there's a lot of neuroscience research, but it tends to be very narrow and deep, you know, the mapping, the neural map of some, small animal or so that's that's all great and it's really interesting but really understanding how the system works as an as a biology and then applying it to other things is, is just amazing huh. well unfortunately we're almost out of time here but uh so yeah what, what another question i had was around Numenta was i mean it sounds like it, it's very good for identifying anomalies so <laughs> any time any place for any situation use case where there's could be a potential for anomalies where there's lots of data. It sounds like uh, 
your HTM framework would be could be quite appropriate. Is that fair? It, yeah, I think it's and over time. So they have, okay. the streaming data is incredibly important. So a big batch file is not going to we're yeah. not going to bring any value to that. So Internet of Things, really interesting application hmm. area. Ooh. Lots and lots of sensors streaming lots and lots of data that you can't train models for. You know, that's a really interesting area. Huh. Is anybody using it in that space? We have a so we don't know. We have lots and lots okay. of interest. Yeah, <laughs> we have, yeah. Since we're open source, there yeah. could be a lot of people doing things that we don't know. We don't have a partner that's um, that is formally that we've engaged with who's doing it though. No, but I mean that's a big thing with IoT is that right? You have all these sensors, and then what are you going to do with it all? And so you have to build right. like custom models for every single factory and every yeah. single company. But if you could uh, come in and at least provide some initial intelligence. Um, for one, the sales would be cycle would be a lot easier, <laughs> and then but then also, yeah, you'd be just so much farther ahead. Huh? That's interesting. Okay, well, uh, I think that's uh, that just about does it, unfortunately. But this is no, a... that's okay. It was fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah, no, I really appreciate your time, lessons. I didn't know your. I knew your background was uh, was interesting, but I didn't know it was that interesting. So it's uh, I'm glad. I was glad to hear. Of, what you've Just done. using and, the word interesting and not strange. Yeah, well, they both kind of go together sometimes. But <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, I really appreciate it, and uh, I'll be curious to see how things go. And I think, uh, I, I, at least I personally, will have to check out uh, your platform a little bit more. And yeah, uh, yeah so thanks, Les, for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. Definitely appreciate it, and I hope you uh, enjoyed it as much as I did. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.